Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we're continuing with post-scarcity anarchism, though we've finished the section of the book called post-scarcity anarchism, we're moving on to one called Listen, Marxist, which I suspect is going to be more targeted at some skepticisms and criticisms I might have, but we're about to find out. So, let's start in. Listen. Marxist. All the old crap of the 30s is coming back again. The shit about the class line, the role of the working class, the trained cadres, the vanguard party, and the proletarian dictatorship. It's all back again in a more vulgarized form than ever. The Progressive Labour Party is not the only example, it is merely the worst. One smells the same shit in various offshoots of SDS and in the Marxist and Socialist clubs on campuses. Not to speak of the Trotskyist groups, the International Socialist clubs, and the Youth Against War and Fascism. In the 30s, at least it was understandable. The United States was paralyzed by a chronic economic crisis, the deepest and the longest in its history. The only living forces that seemed to be battering at the walls of capitalism were the great organizing drives of the CIO, with their dramatic sit-down strikes, their radical militancy, and their bloody clashes with the police. The political atmosphere through the entire world was charged by the electricity of the Spanish Civil War, the last of the classical workers' revolutions, when every radical sect in the American left could identify with its own militia columns in Madrid and Barcelona. That was 30 years ago. It was a time when anyone who cried out, make love not war, would have been regarded as a freak. The cry then was, make jobs not war. The cry of an age burdened by scarcity. When the achievement of socialism entailed sacrifices and a transition period to an economy of material abundance. To an 18-year-old kid in 1937, the very concept of cybernation would have seemed like the wildest science fiction, a fantasy comparable to visions of space travel. That 18-year-old kid has now reached 50 years of age, and his roots are planted in an era so remote as to differ qualitatively from the realities of the present period in the United States. Capitalism itself has changed since then, taking on increasingly statified forms that could be anticipated only dimly 30 years ago. And now we're being asked to go back to the class line, the strategies, the cadres, and the organizational forms of that distant period in almost blatant disregard of the new issues and possibilities that have emerged. When the hell are we finally going to create a movement that looks to the future instead of the past? When will we begin to learn from what is being born instead of what is dying? Marx, to his lasting credit, tried to do that in his own day. He tried to evoke a futuristic spirit in the revolutionary movement of the 1840s and 1850s. Quote, The tradition of all the dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brain of the living. He wrote in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte. And when they seem to be engaged in revolutionizing themselves and things, in creating something entirely new, 
Precisely in such epochs of revolutionary crisis, they anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past to their service and borrow from them names, battle slogans, and costumes in order to present the new scene of world history in this time-honored disguise and borrowed language. Thus, Luther donned the mask of the Apostle Paul. The revolution of 1789 to 1814 draped itself alternatively as the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, and the revolution of 1848 knew nothing better than to parody, in turn, 1789 and the tradition of 1793-95. The social revolution of the 19th century cannot draw its poetry from the past, but only from the future. It cannot begin with itself before it has stripped off all superstition in regard to the past. In order to arrive at its content, the revolution of the 19th century must let the dead bury their dead. There the phrase went beyond the content. Here the content goes beyond the phrase. End quote. Citation 28. Is the problem any different today as we approach the 21st century? Once again, the dead are walking in our midst, ironically draped in the name of Marx, the man who tried to bury the dead of the 19th century. So the revolution of our own day can do nothing better than parody, in turn, the October Revolution of 1917 and the Civil War of 1918-1920, with its class line, its Bolshevik party, its proletarian dictatorship, its puritanical morality, and even its slogan, Soviet power. The complete, all-sided revolution of our own day that can finally resolve the historic social question, born of scarcity, domination, and hierarchy, follows the tradition of the partial, the incomplete, the one-sided revolutions of the past, which merely changed the form of the social question, replacing one system of domination and hierarchy by another. At a time when bourgeois society itself is in the process of disintegrating all the social classes that once gave it stability, we hear the hollow demands for a class line. At a time when all the political institutions of hierarchical society are entering a period of profound decay, we hear the hollow demands for a political party and a worker state. At a time when hierarchy as such is being brought into question, we hear the hollow demands for cadres, vanguards, and leaders. At a time when centralization and the state have been brought to the most explosive point of historical negativity, we hear the hollow demands for a centralized movement and a proletarian dictatorship. This pursuit of security in the past, this attempt to find a haven in a fixed dogma and an organizational hierarchy as substitutes for creative thought and praxis is bitter evidence for how little many revolutionaries are capable of revolutionizing themselves and things, much less of revolutionizing society as a whole. The deep-rooted conservatism of the PLP, footnote 38, revolutionaries is almost painfully evident. The authoritarian leader and hierarchy replace the patriarch and the school bureaucracy. The discipline of the movement replaces the discipline of bourgeois society. The authoritarian code of political obedience replaces the state. The credo of proletarian morality replaces the mores of, of puritanism and the work ethic. 
the old substance of exploitative society reappears in new forms, draped in a red flag, decorated by portraits of Mao, or Castro, or Shea, and adorned with the little red book and other sacred litanies. The majority of the people who remain in the PLP today deserve it. If they can live with a movement that cynically dubs its own slogans into photographs of drum pickets, footnote 39. If they can read a magazine that asks whether Marcuse is a cop-out or cop, if they can accept a discipline that reduces them to poker-faced programmed automata, if they can use the most disgusting techniques, techniques borrowed from the cesspool of bourgeois business operations and parliamentarianism, to manipulate other organizations, if they can parasitize virtually every action and situation merely to promote the growth of their party, even if this means defeat for the action itself, then they are beneath contempt. For these people to call themselves Reds and describe attacks upon them as red-baiting is a form of McCarthyism in reverse. To rephrase Trotsky's juicy description of Stalinism, they are the syphilis of the radical youth movement today. And for syphilis, there is only one treatment, an antibiotic, not an argument. Our concern here is with those honest revolutionaries who have turned to Marxism, Leninism, or Trotskyism because they earnestly seek a coherent social outlook and an effective strategy of revolution. We are also concerned with those who are awed by the theoretical repertory of Marxist ideology and are disposed to flirt with it in the absence of more systematic alternatives. To these people, we address ourselves as brothers and sisters and ask for a serious discussion and a comprehensive re-evaluation. We believe that Marxism has ceased to be applicable to our time, not because it is too visionary or revolutionary, but because it is not visionary or revolutionary enough. We believe it was born of an era of scarcity and presented as a brilliant critique of that era, specifically of industrial capitalism, and that a new era is in birth, which Marxism does not adequately encompass, and whose outlines it only partially and one-sidedly anticipated. We argue that the problem is not to abandon Marxism or to annul it, but to transcend it dialectically, just as Marx transcended Hegelian philosophy, Ricardian economics, and Blanca's tactics and modes of organization. We shall argue that in a more advanced stage of capitalism than Marx dealt with a century ago, and in a more advanced stage of technological development than Marx could have clearly anticipated, a new critique is necessary, which in turn yields new modes of struggle, or organization, of propaganda, and of lifestyle. Call these new modes whatever you wish. We have chosen to call this new approach post-scarcity anarchism for a number of compelling reasons which will become evident in the pages that follow. The Historical Limits of Marxism The idea that a man whose greatest theoretical contributions were made between 1840 and 1880 could foresee the entire dialectic of capitalism is, on the face of it, utterly preposterous. If we can still learn much from Marx's insights, we can learn even more from the unavoidable errors of a man who is limited by an era of material scarcity and a technology that barely involved the use of electric power. 
we can learn how different our own era is from that of all past history, how qualitatively new are the potentialities that confront us, how unique are the issues, analyses, and praxis that stand before us if we are to make a revolution and not another historical abortion. The problem is not that Marxism is a method which must be reapplied to new situations, or that neo-Marxism has to be developed to overcome the limitations of classical Marxism. The attempt to rescue the Marxism pedigree by emphasizing the method over the system, or by adding neo to a sacred word, is sheer mystification if all the practical conclusions of the system flatly contradict these efforts. Footnote 40. Yet this is precisely the state of affairs in Marxian exegesis today. Marxists lean on the fact that the system provides a brilliant interpretation of the past while willfully ignoring its utterly misleading features in dealing with the present and future. They cite the coherence that historical materialism and the class analysis give to the interpretation of history, the economic insights of capital provides into the development of industrial capitalism, and the brilliance of Marx's analysis of earlier revolutions and the tactical conclusions he established, without once recognizing that qualitatively new problems have arisen which never existed in his day. Is it conceivable that historical problems and methods of class analysis, based entirely on unavoidable scarcity, can be transplanted into a new era of potential abundance? Is it conceivable that an economic analysis focused primarily on a freely competitive system of industrial capitalism can be transferred to a managed system of capitalism where state and monopolies combine to manipulate economic life? Is it conceivable that a strategic and tactical repertory formulated in a period when steel and coal constituted the basis of industrial technology can be transferred to an age based on radically new sources of energy, on electronics, on cybernation? As a result of this transfer, a theoretical corpus which was liberating a century ago is turned into a straitjacket today. We are asked to focus on the working class as the agent of revolutionary change at a time when capitalism visibly antagonizes and produces revolutionaries among virtually all strata of society particularly the young. We are asked to guide our tactical methods by the vision of a chronic economic crisis, despite the fact that no such crisis has been in the offing for 30 years. Footnote 41. We are asked to accept a proletarian dictatorship, a long transitional period whose function is not merely the suppression of counter-revolutionaries, but above all the development of a technology of abundance, at a time when a technology of abundance is at hand. We are asked to orient our strategies and tactics around poverty and material immiseration at a time when revolutionary sentiment is being generated by the banality of life under conditions of material abundance. We are asked to establish political parties, centralized organizations, revolutionary hierarchies and elites, and a new state at a time when political institutions as such are decaying and when centralizing elitism and the state are being brought into question on a scale that has never occurred before in the history of hierarchical society. We are asked, in short, to return to the past, to diminish instead of to grow, to force the throbbing reality of our times, with its hopes and promises, 
into the deadening preconceptions of an outlived age. We are asked to operate with principles that have been transcended not only theoretically, but by the very development of society itself. History has not stood still since Marx, Engels, Lenin and Trotsky died, nor has it followed the simplistic direction which was charted out by thinkers, however brilliant, whose minds were still rooted in the 19th century or in the opening years of the 20th. We have seen capitalism itself perform many of the tasks, including the development of a technology of abundance, which were regarded as socialist. We have seen it nationalize property, merging the economy with the state wherever necessary. We have seen the working class neutralized as the agent of revolutionary change, albeit still struggling with a bourgeois framework for more wages, shorter hours, and fringe benefits. The class struggle in the classical sense has not disappeared, it has suffered a more deadening fate by being co-opted into capitalism. The revolutionary struggle within the advanced capitalist countries has shifted into a historically new terrain. It has become a struggle between a generation of youth that has known no chronic economic crisis and the culture, values, and institutions of an older, conservative generation whose perspective on life has been shaped by scarcity, guilt, renunciation, the work ethic, and the pursuit of material security. Our enemies are not only the visibly entrenched bourgeoisie and the state apparatus, but also the outlook which finds its support among liberals, social democrats, the minions of a corrupt mass media, the revolutionary parties of the past, and, painful as it may be to the acolytes of Marxism, the worker dominated by the factory hierarchy, by the industrial routine, and by the work ethic. The point is that the divisions now cut across virtually all the traditional class lines, and they raise a spectrum of problems that none of the Marxists, leaning on analogies with scarcity societies, could foresee. And that is going to do it for this week. Uh, I won't comment much on this section, but I will remind you, despite the fact that this book is talking about people referencing far too old books, this book is from the 70s. And so, some of the claims and assertions about modern society are themselves outdated. I'll be talking more about that, I am sure. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts, as well as go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping and support the network there. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading. <laughs>